This is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, how wonderful that the Church returns us so regularly to John's account of the wedding feast at Cana. Again and again throughout the liturgical year, we come back to this story. There's so much spiritual power packed into this short, elegantly told narrative. John tells us first there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, as you know, weddings are a consistent biblical symbol for the mystical union between God and his people. Take a good long look at the Song of Songs to see the fullest expression of this metaphor. You also find it, though, in the book of the prophet Isaiah. Look at our first reading for today. As a young man marries a virgin, your builder shall marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so shall your God rejoice in you. That's beautiful stuff, isn't it? Your builder, I mean, God's our builder. God's our maker, creator. You don't think of you know, the creator and creature having this, this marital relationship. Like maybe a master-slave relationship or a, you know, kind of a servile relationship. But how wonderful in Isaiah's prophetic imagination that your builder shall marry you. There's this wonderful sense of, of intimacy, even, even equality, not by nature, but a kind of equality by grace, that, that by God's condescension we share in this intimacy with him. And then, wonderful, I think, as a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so shall God rejoice in you. Again, we can imagine, we understand the, the one term of the metaphor, how a bridegroom delights in his wife, in her beauty and personality and charm, maybe loves people to meet her, and he just takes delight in her. Well, it, it's harder to imagine God delighting in us that same way. I mean, God who makes us, uh, we're utterly in every detail dependent upon God, yet we hear it from Isaiah. God delights in us the same way a bridegroom delights in his bride. It's wonderful stuff, isn't it? God wants to marry his people Israel because he loves them so passionately. I and mean, there's the biblical idea. We're not dealing here with a deist understanding of God as some distant force. We're not dealing with an abstraction. We're dealing with a person who's built the whole universe, made it from nothing, and yet wants to marry his people Israel, filling them with his own life. If you want, consummating the marriage. Now, what's the fulfillment of this prophecy? Nothing other than the Incarnation. When a divine and human nature come together in the unity of a divine person to form a marriage between God and Israel, between divinity and humanity. The central doctrine of Christianity, that God becomes one of us, 
is a married marriage married image the coming together in this intimate union of divinity and humanity and this is why the great spiritual master said jesus associates himself right from the beginning in john's gospel with a wedding and desires to manifest his glory precisely in the context of a wedding okay now the event takes place in tiny cana of galilee a modest town, even by ancient Israelite standards. It wasn't one of the big cities of the place. And given the depressed economic conditions of that time and the tininess of the town, these were undoubtedly poor people. It, it might go a long way to explaining why the wine ran out, by the way. We're not dealing with, a, with the rich and famous here, but with a pretty poor couple giving this wedding uh, celebration in a tiny town during economically depressed times. Now, the wine ran out. If a wedding is a powerful biblical symbol, wine is another one. Prophet Isaiah, again, spoke of God's holy mountain, listen, on which a feast of juicy meats and pure choice wine is spread out. And in the ninth chapter of the book of Proverbs, God is envisioned as a woman who sets out a great meal, preparing the meats and mixing the wines. And of course, the Passover meal, the central meal for, uh, for ancient Israel, for Israel to this day, involves a number of cups of wine. Wine which delights the palate, but more to it, that lifts up the mind and the spirit is evocative of the divine life, of grace. So what do we have now, symbolically speaking? And St. John, the evangelist, you know, is a great literary master that uses symbols in a very provocative way. We have a wedding banquet at which the wine has run out. This is a metaphor for Israel lost in its sin. It's another version, if you want, of an, of an Isaiah image of the vineyard that's been overrun and misused. Israel having turned from union with God. What's meant to be festive and life-giving has become dry and lifeless, resentful. So here's the point. To this wedding banquet, what Israel's meant to be to this particular wedding banquet where the wine is run out comes Christ, who is himself the marriage of divinity and humanity, who is himself the wine, if you want, in person. Well, at this point in the story, Mary intervenes. It's the first mention of Mary in the Gospel of John, and significantly, she is speaking to Jesus. What she says addresses not simply the immediate need of an embarrassed family. It is that. And it shows Mary's great sensitivity to um, not only the, the practical requirement of the wine, but of the embarrassment this couple must have felt. But symbolically speaking, Mary's words address what the great prophets of Israel have been addressing for centuries. 
the divine life has run out. In saying they have no more wine, she's speaking at a, at a practical, physical level, but she's also speaking at a metaphorical and spiritual level. The wine has run out. How often the prophets say some version of, O oh Lord, how long? How long before you intervene? How long before you do something? Don't you get that your people Israel is languishing? Shift the metaphor, wandering in the desert. Or this metaphor, they're out of wine. Mary here is Isaiah, Hosea, Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, and all the rest. She's speaking with their insistence and in their cadences. She's Israel saying to its creator, when will you restore the divine life? That's what John wants us to see here, and why Mary is such a decisively important figure. Now, when Jesus hesitates, Mary turns blithely to the waiters and says, do whatever he tells you. Now, as many point out correctly, this is the last word we hear from Mary in John's Gospel, which means in any of the Gospels, which means in the whole New Testament. It's the last word we hear from Mary. And it couldn't be a better swan song for her. She's Israel in its prophetic mode. When will you restore the divine life? Here again, she is Israel in the prophetic mode. What did Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Joel and Hosea and Zechariah say over and over again? Do whatever he tells you, right? They're always calling Israel back to obedience to the Torah, the word of God, the will of God. What they say over and over again is, for God's sake, do what he tells you. Israel becomes lost in the measure that they don't follow God's will. So here's Mary now with a kind of delicious um, confidence saying to these waiters, do whatever he tells you. And what will you find when I will see? The water jars, Jesus says, now fill them up. What are these water jars? Well, they're there for um, ritual purification. So a pious Jew, before uh, going in to eat, would purify his hands, or as coming in from a journey, would purify his feet. Fill them up with water, Jesus says. We might read these, therefore, as symbolic of the ritual and religious life of ancient Israel. The water that's been sustaining Jewish spiritual life for centuries. The law, the covenant, the prophets, the temple, all the ritual and legal activity of ancient Israel. Was it good? Life-giving, nourishing? Yeah, sure. But it wasn't wine. In other words, it wasn't the fullness of what God intended for his people. Good in itself, it needed to be transfigured from above. And this is what, precisely what happens now as Jesus quietly transforms 
that water into wine. He doesn't eschew it or disrespect it in any way. Rather, he takes it, elevates it, and puts it into a new key. You might say now it represents the transformation of ancient Jewish ritual into the sacraments of the church. It's not too much of a strain to see the connection between this miraculously produced wine and the transubstantiated wine of the Eucharist. Think now at Mass. Through the ministrations of the priest, God takes very ordinary elements, bread, water, oil, wine, etc., and he makes them bearers of his grace. He makes them bearers of the divine life, of the wine that Israel has always wanted. Jesus transfigured, uplifted Jewish ritual life, just as now in the sacraments, Jesus transfigures and uplifts ordinary things. The head waiter, as the story comes to a conclusion, says, you know, normally people serve the, the, uh, the good wine first, and then people drunk a little bit, they serve the lesser wine, but you serve the good wine last. Well, see, it's very powerful symbolically. The good wine that's been reserved till the end is precisely the good wine of the Eucharist. Now at the end times revealed to us. The last days, which is to say the era of the church, is when this new wine, Jesus' own divine life, is on offer. That's why this story is a story of salvation, of sacramentality, of the fulfillment of the deepest longings of Israel. And God bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love. Four years in the making, and it's finally here. Our new Catholicism documentary series, book, and study program are now available to order online at catholicismseries.com. Will you help me introduce this epic film series to your parish, school, family, and friends? Catholicism is an unprecedented adventure around the world and deep into the faith. Learn more at catholicismseries.com or call 1-866-928-1237. That's 1-866-928-1237.